As long as humans have been living, we've been dying. And as long as we've been confronting our mortality, we've been asking, what happens when we die? Grief is also a part of that questioning, and it is here that we often seek or tell stories to ourselves as we attempt to make sense of death, which at times seems devoid of sense, logic, or reason. And then, of course, there's always simply our morbid fascination. Ghost stories have probably always existed in one form or another. Even before we could write them down or paint them on the walls of caves, we were likely telling them. And in terms of record keeping, certainly these legends go back to antiquity at least. Some are told and retold so often that they become central to a culture. Sometimes the stories actually take on a life of their own, outliving generations of people who pass them down. Now, I've always loved ghost stories, even though I never really believed in them. While I'm generally a skeptic at heart and, I guess, of mind, I do have to admit that there was one experience in my youth that I really can't adequately explain. The lore of a house, of its haunted history, that became part of my own. Now I'm not sure if it's a good sign when somewhere that you've lived ends up on websites like hauntedrooms.com or gets its own episode of Most Haunted, yet here I am. Now despite my inherent skepticism, I always loved spooky tales and paranormal activity, but mostly because it was just fiction. Had I thought that there was any chance it could be real, I would have been far too terrified to read those books or watch those movies that so entertained me. All that changed when I was a teenager on the lam and took a live-in job at a spectacular inn, one that was, as I was, steeped in the nautical heritage of my hometown. An enormous home that once was just a house, but now would have pretty much been impractical for anybody to live in. Most of the homes have been converted into inns because that's the only way that anybody can afford to keep them up. And even then, they rarely thrive. Even as I'm telling you this story, which took place a decade ago now, the inn I speak of is no longer longer operational. Last I heard it was sold at auction for a fraction of what it was worth, and it sits empty, uninhabited, except I suppose for the spirits that roam its halls and linger in those rooms that were cold, even in July. And that's what I remember of it now. I was there for a summer when I was 16. It was an enormous airy place with a fascinating history. There really wasn't a single part of its story that wasn't interesting, and most of it had nothing to do with spooks. The biggest revelation was the discovery of a mural beneath layers of peeling wallpaper along the staircase that had been painted by an artist named Waldo Pierce who had lived there for many years. But the rooms were chilly. I remember that. I remember being thankful for it as the 4th of July weekend approached and I knew that I would be slaving over a hot stove at 5 in the morning or scrubbing the bathroom floors as midday sun poured in through the windows, sweat burning hot against the back of my neck. It was peculiar though. Eventually I moved into the attached carriage house, which had been converted into a studio apartment. Not because I was pushed out of the main inn by ghosts, but rather that at the height of summer, there were always fully booked rooms, and since there were just a handful of them, each with its own unique setup, I didn't have anywhere else to sleep. It was a popular destination for the recently wed and those who wanted a quaint New England weekend with a view. Now, I knew about the haunted legacy, but I didn't think much of it at first. I certainly didn't offer this information up to any guests. It was only after the innkeeper had to go away and left me unattended on my own to run the place for a couple of weeks that I started to become more aware of, well, 
that which I could not explain. And my inquisitiveness came not from anything a guest said particularly, but rather from Jimmy, the dog, an old basset hound who refused to go in certain parts of the house, certain rooms that he would stop short of as though caught out. He'd always been this way, I was told, and I guess I should have considered that. It would have behooved me to heed his apprehensiveness sooner. The house that became the inn was built by one of five seafaring McGilvery brothers. There are, in fact, two McGilvery houses in that town, and they are practically one right next to the other. This particular one was 6,000 square feet with 13 rooms, five fireplaces, its original pumpkin pine floors, and 12-foot ceilings. It was built by Captain John McGilvery in 1874. Now, at the time it was built, it cost $5,000, when most homes in Maine would have cost around 100. And it really was beautiful, if not impractical by today's standards. Of course, at the turn of the century, when the town was a hub of shipbuilding and seafaring, it would have been prime real estate. While it was no less striking to look at or live in, even just for a night or two. When I was there, it was certainly difficult in terms of upkeep and, I would imagine, property taxes. Other than the McGilvery's and eventually Waldo Pierce entertaining his pals like Hemingway, there were others who must have lived there at some point over the years, and somewhere in there, as the story goes, people died there. Specifically, children. Now, in terms of what I know of the spirit listings, there were actually several stories. I only have first-hand experience with one, but I'll tell you what I know of the other haunted lore that existed there as well. There were accounts of an older gentleman ghost whose presence you would know by the inexplicable scent of a cigar, which he smoked. Now, a friend and I had hacked our way through two cheap cigars on the porch one night, attempting to summon him to no avail. And then there were children, one who supposedly fell or was pushed out of the third story window, which, if memory serves, was something blamed on the family dog in some accounts, which I guess is probably why poor old Jimmy wouldn't go into that room at all. And you could often hear the sound of this apparition bouncing a ball in the hallway. Now this is what guests most often reported, as they would wonder about the children living in the house or perhaps staying there, only to be told that there were none. And then there was the child who fell down the back service staircase. This spirit, I think, may have been of a different era than the other child, though I do often wonder if they ever crossed spectral paths. I imagine that they could have teamed up and raised hell, and part of me would have been oddly comforted by that. And this was the only ghost that I have to assume paid me a visit during my stint there. I would be cleaning the bathroom near the back staircase and hear the door at the bottom open and close rather deliberately. It wasn't the wind and it wasn't some weird movement of an old wooden house. It was as if a friend had arrived unannounced and was on their way upstairs to yank me away from my toilet bowl cleaning to go to the wharf for a quick swim. One time in particular, as I was cleaning the clawfoot tub, I heard the door creak open, shut, and then the sound of light footsteps on the stairs. I didn't give it much thought because I thought it was probably just Jimmy, except that no sooner had I thought the thought did Jimmy come trotting into the bathroom from the door on the bedroom side. Clearly he had not just come upstairs because he would have had to go through the bathroom to get to the bedroom, and he had not. Puzzled, I put down my cloth and went to peek down over the stairs. There was a draft in the air as I looked down, and though it was mid-morning the staircase was eerily dark and decidedly empty. I remember turning around to see Jimmy looking at me somewhat peculiarly. I reassured him, and I guessed myself, that there was nothing there and that we were alone. No guests were due to check in until the following morning, in fact. I shuddered, and thinking that perhaps the bedroom window I had opened in the adjoining room could maybe stand to be closed now that I was almost done cleaning and the bleach had long dissipated, 
I turned and made my way into the bedroom, practically tripping over old Jimmy as I did because he was quite insistently at my heels. He too seemed to be shaking slightly. Now as I reached up to close the window, I felt that it was almost as though someone had stepped into the room. Thinking that perhaps a friend or somebody looking to stay the night had come upstairs looking for me, I turned toward the door that was leading out into the hallway, just in time to see it slowly, softly close. There had been no gust of wind. Jimmy was still at my ankles and he sort of cocked his head to the side as if to say, now what the fuck was that? And though I tried to reason, tried to make sense of it, deep down I really did feel as though someone, perhaps a playful but very well-behaved child, had come up the back stairs, passed by me as I worked, gone through the bedroom and was now headed elsewhere in the house, thoughtfully shutting the door behind them as they had likely been taught to do. It was senseless, but it was also in that moment the only thing that made sense. I couldn't explain it to my skeptical brain, but I also recall thinking that there was no particular feeling that I needed to. The spirits were not bothersome or even mischievous, and if anything, they seemed polite and civil. And while I didn't explicitly discuss it or even think about it much until very recently, there was a feeling after that happened that I was never really alone. And at that time in my life, that was kind of a strange comfort to me, I admit. Sure, it would have been different if they had been poltergeists, but the worst thing that happened while I was there was the inconvenience of lights in one room that just refused to stay on. Faulty wiring, I would tell guests. Old wiring in old houses. Rustic charm. I'll leave you some spare light bulbs. After the guests would leave and the lights would go out while I was turning over the linens, I would only shake my head at the silliness of it and wait. Changing a light bulb was only ever a show for a guest, a demonstration of reassuring logic. It never worked for long, if it worked at all. And when it was only Jimmy and I and whoever else was roaming those halls, we never bothered. Truly, I think when it came to the question of our ghostly housemates, I think Jimmy and I were both content to remain in the dark.